Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. that song in my anthropology class to prompt discussions related to cultural differences and preferences. I remind them that different is not wrong, different is different. However, today I want to use it with a different focus. The video highlighted the different meats and the different sauces used for barbecue in the South. When people move to or travel to other parts of the South, they're exposed to different types of barbecue, and they can have varying responses. Some people refuse to eat any barbecue that's different from what they've grown accustomed to eating. Some will eat the different barbecue, but they will spend the entire time critiquing and complaining about their barbecue while proclaiming the superiority of barbecue back home. Some will simply enjoy the different barbecue set before them and savor the moment and the differences. Now, my personal response is, I am all things to all barbecue that I might consume it all. (laughs) Let's be honest. Most of us really like what we're used to. And we don't want someone tampering with what brings us comfort. Please don't upset my world by messing with my barbecue, would be the attitude of many. As important as barbecue is in the South, there are more important changes we must wrestle with today. Now let me tell you a couple things about me. I'm about as Southern Baptist as a person can be. To take liberty from the Apostle Paul, I'm a Southern Baptist of Southern Baptist. I have only been a member of a Southern Baptist church. I graduated from two Southern Baptist colleges. I graduated twice from a Southern Baptist seminary. I started serving as a pastor of a Southern Baptist church at the age of 18, and I currently serve as a pastor. I received financial support from the then Home Mission Board and the State Convention while planting a Southern Baptist church. I've served with the International Mission Board, the greatest mission agency in the world, for 10 years. I have taught at two different Southern Baptist seminaries for a total of 14 years. My preferred Bible translation is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, also known as the official Lifeway Bible. I read two state convention papers, and I have Baptist Press delivered to my email box. My first topic for this lecture was going to be why I believe in the cooperative program. I love being Southern Baptist. I love Southern Baptist. Second, I'm a 56-year-old man who values stability, consistency, routine, and order. My natural tendency is towards control. When I served in a leadership capacity with the IMB, I was invited to a leadership development workshop. 
I had to complete forms related to my leadership style and then select a group of people working with me and they had to complete the same forms evaluating my leadership style. The forms matched except in one area. Although the ones working with me did not notice this or were too kind to indicate this, my responses indicated my strong tendency towards control. Actually, you could not score any higher than I did on control, which was not a positive mark. There was only one other person in the entire workshop who matched my score, the person leading the workshop. If I could control Southern Baptist, I would require all churches to give at least 10% through the cooperative program. So, I am a Southern Baptist of Southern Baptist. I value stability, order, and control. So why do I want to talk about change this morning? My natural response to change is, but Lord, I don't like change unless I initiate it. I'm fearful at times of change, but I am more fearful of not being willing to change. According to the death clock, I will die on Monday, February the 24th, 2031. Please put on your calendar to attend my funeral at 2 p.m. on Thursday, February the 27th, 2031. I like planning in advance. Obviously, we don't know when I will die. But according to the death clock, I have about 16 and a half more years to live. But I may die today. I may die before this lecture is over. Or perhaps I'll live 30 more years. There is something I fear more than dying today. I fear living 30 more years but being dead already because I refuse to change. I fear churches who are still operational but practically are dead already. I fear a Southern Baptist convention that continues to function and use kingdom resources but is more concerned with convention maintenance than kingdom advancement. The quote, the only person who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper is attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if Twain ever changed any diapers, but I have. Babies don't like the changing process. They like the results of change. They learn to accept the change in order to get to the results. I would propose that we should do the same. When we change diapers, we do so because there is a need. The diaper is wet or dirty with a smelly substance. We know the process of changing the diaper will not be fun, but we also know hearing the baby cry and smelling the odor will force us into action as responsible adults. When I have to undergo change, whether by my choice or the choice of someone else, 
I will generally embrace it with some level of acceptance, even if it is reluctant acceptance. But then I want to stabilize it ASAP. I want to settle back into a new norm. Mentally, I can acknowledge acceptance, but inwardly, I struggle. For over 2,500 years, people have been quoting a Greek philosopher when they say, the only thing that is constant is change. So why do we need change? And how do we handle change? And what areas do we need change? I have the privilege of serving as a major professor or mentor to some of our Ph.D. students in the area of missions. Because of the interest and research of one of my Ph.D. students, who will have to remain nameless due to ministry location, I have had to venture into the deep waters of organic systems. Now, I will not bore you with all the matters that we have discussed, but there are some key principles that I wish to draw upon as they relate to the need for change. Excuse me. If there's anything worse than listening to a lecture by somebody from South Georgia, it's listening to somebody that's struggling with allergies today, so I apologize for that. <coughs> Pascal Millman and Goja, in Surfing the Edge of Chaos, concentrate on how to foster constant change and growth in an organization in order to keep it from reaching equilibrium and dying. They maintain that cornerstone principles of the life sciences have been translated into practice and have considerably improved the odds of success in achieving discontinuous change. Nurturing discontinuous change is what it means for an organization to thrive on the edge of chaos. Now let's make sure we understand the concept of discontinuous. Discontinuous has the idea of interrupted, intermittent. Change is consistently being implemented even if it is not constantly being introduced. Without the threat of impending doom, organizations like living organisms become lazy because they are no longer forced to adapt to changing environments. When organizations fail to adapt or attempt to reach a state of standing still, just holding their own, they will predictably die. The authors maintain that the goal for an organization is to be a winner. In order to win, an organization must be adaptable and innovative. In order to adapt, an organization must first self-organize by realizing the potential of all of its parts working together in new and fresh ways, the organization will reach an organizational higher ground. Self-organization requires that every member be valued and allowed a voice in the organization's future. Through fostering this type of communal intelligence, all members of the organizations are encouraged to buy in and become completely connected to the organization. Equilibrium is a precursor to death. Now please recall that I 
like order. I like balance. Yet balance leads to comfort and ultimately to death. The authors say, in the face of threat or even galvanized by compelling opportunity, living things move towards the edge of chaos. This condition evokes higher levels of experimentation and fresh new solutions are more likely to be found. Prolonged equilibrium dulls the senses and zaps its ability to arouse itself appropriately in the face of danger. Innovations will rarely emerge from systems with high degree of order and stability. Systems in equilibrium lose diversity and give rise to the sorts of problems one encounters in incestuous communities and centrally planned economies. When new solutions are discovered or developed, there still remains the important part of implementation. The suffering of the suffering surfing of chaos authors maintain most managers today, in contrast to their 19th century counterparts, recognize that people need to be brought on board. But they still go about it in predetermined fashion. Trouble arises because of the soft stuff is really the hard stuff. And no one can really engineer it. Today, any smart leader knows that he's got to seek buy-in. But too much of the time we go through the motions without true engagement. I was in a field-based leadership role when the IMB went through what we called the New Directions Reorganization. The reorganization was rough to say the least, even if you agreed with all the changes. I recall hearing Jerry Rankin President of the IMB during this reorganization remarked that if he could go back and change anything, it would be more communication. However, from my perspective, there was plenty of communication from the top. The level of communication that was missing was the communication from the other direction. I attended a meeting of a select group of IMB leaders and a select group of national partners related to New Directions. The presentations were great. The obligatory Q&A sessions seemed to be tacked on after the masterful PowerPoint presentations. The room became deathly quiet when one of the partners stated, you brought us here to tell us how it will be, not to listen to us and get our opinions. Ouch. Conversation is communication in both directions. At the edge of chaos, bets are placed on the whole company. Significantly, this is also when you need to draw on the collective intelligence of the entire organization. There will be no true communication until all parties are committed to open communication and truly believe the conversation is valued by all. A forgotten but important law of cybernetics states that the survival of any system depends on its capacity to cultivate, 
not just tolerate variety in the structure. This means that in order to survive and ultimately to thrive, the voices with different ideas must be seen as assets because they push us to see problems and solutions differently. If you hear differing voices as always being a negative, then you are missing out on the potential of the differing voices. We all need to be stretched by those who are thinking and communicating differing viewpoints. Drifts in organizations become evident when more and more energy is dedicated to tweaking a strategy that maintains status quo. Tweaking when a major shift is necessary is akin to rearranging chairs on the sinking Titanic. You may feel good about your activity, but it is a fruitless adventure and expenditure of energy. During the time that Jack Welch served as CEO of General Electric, there were many new initiatives. It was stated that each one of these initiatives shared a pattern. They amplified survival threats and fostered disequilibrium to evoke fresh ideas and innovative responses. One of the most effective of all amplifiers is to overload an organization so that it cannot continue to conduct business as usual. As Christians... As churches and as a Southern Baptist Convention, we need amplifiers that force us to move beyond business as usual. For the churches and the convention, that amplifier may well be our declining numbers. As I previously stated, I like to stabilize the new norm ASAP. Yet, there is no permanent victory. While we are still this side of eternity, there is no permanent victory in my personal walk with the Lord. There is no permanent victory in the life of the local church. There is no permanent victory in the life of our convention. Many of us have grown immune to change. When there's new leadership that comes in place, we, we kind of duck our heads and we try to lay low the the authors actually give a, a term here that I don't think I can explain in chapel and keep my job, but after opening with the barbecue song, that may be a moot point anyway. But it goes down like this. Keep your head down and this too shall pass. We just tried to get through and endure the change instead of understand the why change. Making change should be properly motivated. It should be driven by the wig take Question, what is it going to take to accomplish what we are valuing as success? That means we must back up and ask what changes we will need to make. Not simply make changes because there is new leadership, but because we are focusing on what determines success for our lives, for our churches, and for our convention. Hirsch and Katcham maintain in the permanent revolution. The real, reality is that in this complex world, with an ever-increasing rate of discontinuous change, we can use an existing approach only 
until the environment, the situation shifts. A simple improvement in current practices will no longer do in these circumstances. When strategy and environment are radically incongruent, innovative strategies have to be explored in order to re-engage their current situation. It's important for us to realize that when a church, an organization, faces a challenge and we're part of it, you are always the easiest part to change, as hard as that is. Why? Because you control your own response. The Spirit within every Christian and existing within every individual church and in the Southern Baptist Convention empowers them to expand the kingdom of God to the very edge of chaos. Many churches throughout history have settled for a comfortable existence nestled in the hope of equilibrium and as such have failed to take seriously the command of Christ to go to the nations. In a recent blog by J.D. Payne entitled Status Quo and Two Billion to Go, he offers a reflection on status quo and innovation. He defines status quo as the existing state of affairs and an innovation as the act or process of introducing something new. As he writes against status quo mentality, it's also wise to warn that it's often not helpful for kingdom advancement whenever we destroy what has been developed over years, decades, and sometimes centuries. Payne argues that kingdom citizens must be engaged in innovation. We must build upon our past, which we treasure, but we do not worship, while innovating for, the, innovating for today and tomorrow. In light of the two billion people in the world who have never heard of Jesus, we must not lock ourselves down into the status quo. In the light of two billion people in our world who have never heard of Jesus, we must build upon that which has gone before us. While not using the language of equilibrium and status quo, Southeastern's very own Dr. Chuck Wallace recently wrote an article, 12 Reasons Why Churches Don't Address the Climb. He says, first of all, nobody is counting the numbers. And I would like to introduce a quote from the great theologian Bill Parcells. You are what your record says you are. We can argue about our numbers and we can justify our numbers as a convention, as a church, but our record is what our record is. Too many of the times we ignore our problems because we have enough of numbers to get by with. And too, too much of the time we're too prideful to reach out for help. Ron Edmondson deals with change and he says it's unknown, it's challenging, it's uncertain, and it's unpopular. He also cautions us by saying time take, change takes time. There are no quick fixes. And there's no quick fix to this lecture, so I'm jumping around really quick. Let's make a current application for Southern Baptists. Tom Elliff, in making what would be his final report to trustees on May the 14th, offers some challenging words. By the grace in God, because of sacrificial giving, the IMB has been, had been working for 73 years before we started calling it the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 
have been in existence for 80 years before we developed a cooperative program. Our history is one of constant change and adaptation. Every era has brought its opportunity and its challenges. Then he goes on and deals with some of the problems that we're facing. And he concludes with this. With your permission, by God's grace, and because ours is a kingdom rather than a national interest, I like to paraphrase and give spiritual life to a Winston Churchill statement. In it, I believe there is a message for the IMB, a message for us, a message for the board, a message for our personnel and for our convention. To each Southern Baptist Convention entity and its trustees, there comes in their lifetime special moments when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the opportunity to do a very special thing, unique to them, fitted to their charge, and filled with kingdom significance. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared, unqualified, or unwilling for that which could have been their finest hour. May I add, be unwilling to change. Southern Baptists must consider, can there be change without pain? The answer is no. People never change until pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. That's why there can't be change without pain. Change will require pain, but pain directed purposely and properly will bring results. Bill Wilson, in an article entitled Gloom and Doom Scenarios for the Church, usually overlook a vital truth. Things can change. Are you tired of the doomsday rhetoric about the church in the 21st century? we got to change. Phoebe Venable, a CFA, writes about change. She says, gloomy predictions overlook change. They take a course and they just project it out. Change can happen. She tells the story about the manure crisis of 1894 that existed in England and in New York City and other metropolitan areas. And there was an article that was written in 1894 by a writer in the Times of London that predicted in 50 years every street in London would be buried under nine feet of manure. There's another reason I'll be fired after the day. As always, necessity breeds innovation. Nine feet of manure. Did that happen? No. Why? There was change. We had development of the automobile. Ninety-one years ago, on April 28, 1923, in a rare Saturday morning meeting of the board of directors, Robert W. Woodruff was elected president of Coca-Cola, already the number one soft drink manufacturer in the United States. He reminded his personnel and kept it on his desk the same The world belongs to the discontented. When he became president of Coca-Cola in 1923, Coca-Cola was only bottled in five countries outside the U.S. By 1930, that had climbed to almost 30 countries. Today, Coca-Cola is not available in only two countries in the entire world. Coca-Cola said the world belongs to the discontented. On August 27, 2014, IMB trustees elected 36-year-old Dr. David Platt as president as he has passionately called for radical obedience to the gospel and the mandate to the nations. 
Does anybody really think that He came on board to maintain equilibrium and the status quo? God help us if that is the case, but it's not. The world belongs to the discontented. I hope that we will have holy discontentment. I hope that we will be willing to surf the chaos to make the changes necessary to be what God wants us to be. This past June, after he was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Ronnie Floyd said, Today the church seems to have more polished than passion, more, is more pathetic than prophetic, more superficial than supernatural. We need revival. In an article at the end of the month, Floyd stated, Why is this important? Our convention has bemoaned our decline in baptisms, memberships, attendance, and giving far too long. Now is the time for us to take aggressive action by calling out to God together in prayer. At the same time, we must take the needed strategic actions to change our trajectory as a convention of churches. While we face these critical times, we know God is doing some amazing things through Son of Baptist. As we celebrate these to the glory of God, we also call out to God in urgent desperation. Alan Bloom, editor of the Biblical Recorder, wrote an editorial using the title of a sermon by J. Evan Orr, and he entitled it, Revival is Like Judgment Day. Bloom heard this sermon preached 27 years ago, and it was the last sermon that Orr would ever preach as he died the very next morning. Revival is like Judgment Day. And so what is our motivation for wanting revival, Bloom asked. Maybe we want a culture that is less stressful, more comfortable and less challenging. Maybe we want to go back to the good old days when everyone attended our churches for the same reason they joined the country club. Bloom says, I don't believe God has any interest in our comfort. We must do something. Gerald Harris, the editor of the Christian Index, tells a story he recalled from Governor Mike Huckabee. When Governor Huckabee and his daughter Sarah visited Israel, they visited the museum that was focusing on the victims of the Holocaust. He was concerned how this would impact his 10-year-old daughter as they were exiting the museum, there was a guest restaurant with a space to write a comment. And Sarah wrote these words, Why didn't somebody do something? I would say to us today that as tragic as seeing six million Jews exterminated, seeing a world that's going to hell is even worse. And we say, why didn't somebody do something? We will never have revival as individuals until we are willing to do something. And that something is to change, to repent. We will never have churches with a passion for making disciples of all peoples. And churches are willing to do something. And that something is to change, to repent. We will never be a great commission and a great commandment convention until the convention is willing to do something and that something is to change, to repent. We must do something as individuals, as churches, and as a convention. 
our effectiveness depends on it. Our vitality depends on it. Our lives depend on it. I don't want to be dead before I'm dead. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.